bubble over their head, see it, like visualize a thought bubble, especially if what they're saying is annoying. And in the thought bubble, put in these words, I care enough to say something, but I don't know what to say, so I'm choosing to say, and then put a blank. That, my friends, is Levi Lusco. If you don't know Levi Lusco, he's written a few books. He is the founding pastor of Fresh Life Church, which is based in Montana. And I think it's got campuses in Oregon and Utah and Wyoming. And uh, he started that church in 2007 and has been there since then. And, um, you know, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to this guy is uh, not because he's written some books as much or because, you know, he has, uh, you know, a big following, um, but because... Um, of a tragedy that happened to his family. Uh, their uh, daughter, Lena, passed away tragically at the age of five. And uh, we're going to get into that on this podcast. And in a lot of ways, the book was kind of going that direction anyway. Um, but anyway, uh, this conversation turns pretty serious pretty fast. And I uh, came away super impressed with uh, Levi Lusco. And I bet you will too. And uh, yes, you might notice my voice is a little deep right now. Um, had a little bit of a problem, a little cold over the weekend, and uh, this is late Sunday night with a cold, posting the podcast, really post on Sunday night, but I was sick on Thursday, been out of the office, so um, you know, you got to do what you got to do, but without further ado, I think you're going to really enjoy this podcast with Levi Lusco. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today, we have joining us all the way up from Montana, Levi Lusco. How are you, man? So good, Luke. Thanks for having me. Montana, I feel like... The only thing I know about Montana is that it's close to Yellowstone, and I watched that show, which makes me think I know exactly what your day-to-day life is like. Is that an accurate depiction of what your life is like? That is so funny that you would say that. First of all, that show is amazing. Yeah. Uh, it, it is, I think, the fashion especially, the clothes they wear. I'm always watching them going like, man, where did you get that jacket? Uh, but yeah, it, <laughs> it, uh, that, that was almost my daily life, about 0%, mm. uh, other than the fact that we do live in Montana. And Yellowstone, which Wyoming likes to claim also, mm-hmm. uh, is here. But I live actually close to Glacier National Park, okay. which is uh, the, the closest park to us. We're like 40 minutes from there. It's okay. amazing. Well, I live in Texas, and people assume I ride a horse to work with uh, AR over my shoulder, and uh, neither of those things are accurate depictions of me. So I guess you can be miscast as well. Yeah, you get uh, on your way to get your oat milk latte at one of the 20 bougie coffee shops, you probably don't ride a horse. Yeah, no, that's kind of the mixture of Austin. Like, you got the bougie, mm-hmm. and then you've got, like, the rural stuff. But uh, neither of those, I don't like coffee, and I don't ride horses. So Stop, no. Yeah. What, do, you, what, do you drink tea? I, I just drink water, my man. That is very healthy. Yeah, no, I just like water. Do you, I, like, I, I assume you're a, a high coffee person. I do like coffee. I do not like water. <laughs> so I drink uh, almost all Perrier. Someone asked me uh, the other day, like, do you think Perrier counts as water? And I said, if it doesn't, I haven't had a glass of water in 10 years. So, <laughs> Well, okay, my wife doesn't like to just drink straight water either. Um, I, I thought it was like a weird like medical issue or something. But no, you, you're just saying it's a normal thing for some people. Yeah, well, I know Ted Lasso doesn't like water, uh, yeah, bubbly water. He doesn't he, like tea he, either, he's... though. Yeah, that's true. He spit the, the Perrier all over the newscasters. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's like two podcasts in a row with a Ted Lasso reference. So I think he's, he's on to something. So uh, we don't like the bubbly water. Uh, we don't like tea. And that's what we have in common. Um, I, I heard, I think on social, I gained the information that you were in uh, Texas recently. Were you down in Houston? Yes, I was down in Houston, and I'm headed back. I love Texas. I get down to Dallas a ton. I mean, if you're going to be in the Christian media industry in any way, you know you're going to be in Nashville. Yep. You know you're going to be in Texas. Uh, all the roads lead to Dallas. And then mm-hmm. uh, I would throw Atlanta probably into that mix, too. Yeah, no, that's um, Nashville, Dallas, Atlanta. Yeah. 
Orlando. You're going to be in Orlando some too. Mm. If I yeah. if I had to rank those, I think Orlando would be the last place of those those four cities. You don't have to do that yourself, but uh, I'm just going to say that's my ranking. I will say though, with little kids, I love to tag on a day at Disney if we can. So that's kind of fun. And then you know, go to Universal, get the butter beer at the Harry Potter Land. Now I've offended mm. all the homeschool moms <laughs> out listening out there. Yeah, can't talk about Harry Potter. Yeah, or or beer. Um, any kind of beer they don't want to hear. Yeah, we not even not even butter beer. Yeah, especially not butter beer uh, for all yeah. those paleo people. They don't want the dairy. Um, I my daughters had a cheer competition at Disney this past year, and so we were there for like four days, and uh, like that's a lot. Like that's a lot of like Disney for me. Um, that's kind of like my my limit. I feel like one day is kind of the right way to do it. That's a lot, you know. But Disney World is hard to get your arms around in a day because you have so many parks, you know. So we target like. Okay, this trip we're gonna do two. You know, that's it. Two days is max for me. I'm with you. I like I like the more surgical one trip. You surgical. know, one day. But we're more Disneyland people, quite honestly. Although I heard the new Ratatouille ride that's only at Disney World is is pretty good. So. Really? Like, what makes you like like the the one in California is smaller, right? It is smaller, but it's the original, and it, every detail of it was actually personally built by Walt Disney. I mean, obviously not California Adventure and stuff, but. And I'm just a West Coast guy, yeah. so I, to me, Disney World. When I stood in the Main Street area of the, yeah. you know, whatever the Magic Kingdom was, the castle felt like it was in the wrong place. It just <laughs> felt wrong. It felt like I was in a dream, you know. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I, I don't like I, the Disney, like the theme part. Like that's not really my thing either. Um, my wife would appreciate if I kind of was more like you in that sense because she loves that stuff. But we went to Disney. Uh, Disney. The one in California, which I forget the names. My bad. Land. Yeah. But uh, I've heard, like, if you're a real Disney person, like, what you want is the invite to, the, like, the special club at Disney. Like, there's a, you know what I'm talking about? Club 33. Yeah. H- have you been there? I've, we've eaten dinner there wow. a number of times and lunch there a few times. It yeah. is incredible. It's in New Orleans Square, kind of above Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. There's no label. You just see a number 33 on this random door. Like and you push the doorbell and a thing opens. And they're like, who, who, what's your name? Mm-hmm. And only if your name's in the list can you get up. Then you get brought to this secret area where you eat a meal overlooking uh, the French Quarter, and it's incredible. But someone has to be a member who gets you in, mm-hmm. and the day you go there, your tickets are free. You don't pay anything to get into the park, wow. but the cost of your lunch is more than a day in Disneyland. But it's a pretty epic experience. We did it for my daughter Linia's fifth birthday mm-hmm. before she went to heaven, and it was just so much fun. Yeah. Um, wow. Fifth birthday there, yeah. So that was right before. Now, for my listeners who don't know the story, uh, it was an asthma attack. That so it, it wasn't like an expected illness that you were planning or something before, right? No, 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 no. We was the exact opposite of that. You know, with with the deepest appreciation to people who have had kids, respect rather yeah. to people who have had kids, kids die of cancer and stuff. I found myself a lot of times jealous, sadly, of that because of the way they would get to say goodbye. And of course, that comes with its own terrible, terror. I wouldn't wish that on anybody, of course, but that's just real talk. I hear you. Yeah, um, we, we had no way to see it coming. So I think what happened for us when she died of asthma, it was out of the blue and just happened one day, five days before Christmas. Um, all of our grief had to be on the back end where I think if you have a child die slowly over a long time, you do a lot of the grieving on the front end. And I've heard from people that it can almost be a relief when the pain ends, when they go home to be with Jesus. So I think, you know, it's easier to look at the grass greener on the other side of the fence, but our, our situation was, it was a total surprise. Um, Okay. So I I didn't know your story, um, but uh, uh, Carl Lentz 
tells the story in his, uh, his book. And I was on a plane reading his book, going up to New York. I was doing a pod with him uh, and didn't know your story. And so I'm on this plane I'm reading. And like, I, I've got three daughters. And uh, her, your daughter's middle name was Avery. Is that right? Her, and so my oldest yep. daughter's named Avery. And uh, so I'm reading the story. And I just like start bawling on a plane. And because uh, it's like my worst, worst nightmare. And so yesterday I'm on a plane and I'm like thinking through this podcast and I'm again, like I'm overwhelmed with emotion and just talking about the story seems like it takes my breath away. And it seems like the worst possible thing that like I could imagine as a dad. I, I've had other friends who've, who've lost kids while doing the work that you do, you and I do as a pastor it seems to me like it would be impossible for me to like keep going. Like there'd be a season where I'm just like, I, I'm out. I can't do anything. It's overwhelming. And then there's other people who like, they, they want to be on the stage and they want to be uh, like preaching that like, that's part of their grief process. What was that like for you as a leader in the midst of like the worst thing us parents can imagine? Well, <clears throat> thank you, Luke. Um, and let me just say, since you mentioned him, you know, Carl Lentz, I know he's had a very, very challenging year. The whole Lentz family's had a very tough year and, you know, not speaking to any of that, I, I just would say he was um, a, ber- a very big encouragement to us in the midst of all that. You know, he, he gave up Christmas with his family that week and got on a plane and flew out here to cover my service for me. And uh, so I didn't have to preach that week, you know. So uh, for the rest of my life, I will be grateful for his kindness. And for six or seven years after Lenya went home to heaven, every single year on that day, Laura would send flowers uh, for Lenya and so, you know, uh, I am going to always be grateful for the Lentz family and the role that they played in our, our story. But um, it was through people like that, friends who just gave us that encouragement. And I think for us, um, as you mentioned, you know, as a dad, I, if I could have taken a knife and cut open my heart and given it to my daughter, I would have. If I, if I could have literally died right then, if it would have saved her, I would have done it a hundred times over. You know, my breath was filling up her lungs. You know, I was doing CPR. It was, it was the most terrible, helpless, terrible, you know, um, cold thing to go through and to not be able to do anything about it. The ambulance, the paramedics, the doctors, everybody tried their hardest. I did everything I could. We prayed all of our best prayers and Jesus took her home. And so, you know, then, then it's like, okay, either, either at this moment life ends or it keeps going, you know, and I still have other kids and right. I don't know how to describe it other than as awful as it was, God was with us. He gave us the strength to do it. Paul says that there's such a thing as peace that passes understanding. And when you need it, that's there. You know, I don't know how I could ever have done it, but God gave me the strength. And then, you know, as far as continuing to preach, it it just sort of occurred to me, like, since Lenya's with Jesus, and I'm going to see her again, the best thing I can do is tell more people about Jesus, and that would honor her the most. It was like, what would Lynn you want me to do now? Would she want me to get on heroin and curl up on a ball under my table and die? She would say, dad, keep going, keep preaching, keep doing what you've always done. So it wasn't anything noble or pure. It was just something like, what else can I do? Yeah. Yeah. There's almost like a survival instinct that I would imagine kicks in. And uh, like, I've never had this experience that uh, you and your family had to go through or have continued to go through. Uh, I, I had a, there's a couple of days my daughter was on the oncology floor uh, at Dell Children's. We, we thought she had leukemia and, uh, you know, we're uh, very grateful that that's not our situation. But there was um, like seeing like we had the last night we were there, we had found actually it's not leukemia, but we're on uh, the, the oncology floor. 
at a children's hospital and we see like the families around us. And so it was like the, like the best news I've ever received in my life. Um, and then to be around other people, like there's this level of like survivor skill. And I went um, to, to serve at our church on Sunday and like there was families who I knew 20 years ago were in the exact same situation and got the worst news possible and they got the opposite. And, so, and, and for me in that moment, just like, I, I don't, like, I, I'm just overwhelmed in the same way that y- you described uh, in a way that, like, far surpasses, like, my brief, like, like trip into this awful situation of, like, you, you just have to, like, keep going on. And for you to talk about it, does it help or does it hurt? Do you ever feel like like you talk so much about it that it becomes just like a, a normal story that like us preachers tell over and over again and it's just like another sermon that you say and eventually you just talk about it so much that like somehow part of like the soul of it gets lost or do you feel like it, it like brings life into your family, into your daughter's story? Yeah, yeah, I think about that. Um, when Lenya went home... Um, I couldn't anymore, like, I, I couldn't buy her presents anymore. I couldn't, you know, that Christmas, she died five days before Christmas, so there's presents under the tree with her name on them, you know? So, obviously, like, that, I had already bought, like, I had given her a promise ring. She had asked for a promise ring, another one, because she had already lost the first one. And, you know, we just were like, hey, look, I'll buy them in batches from Costco if I need to, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so, that was under the tree. She had a red flannel I had bought her at, at, at Uniqlo and a couple other things, and and uh, so it was, it was like similar, like I was saying, like when we give money to Jesus, which we do when we get paid, when we, when we give offerings, if we do something to help a soup kitchen, to me, that's my way of continuing to honor her memory and her legacy. So similarly, like uh, when I would tell her story preaching or when I would do it, it, it wasn't like it was grist for the mill or it was a sense of like, this is now, I didn't ask for the story. But I'm going to use it because the Bible says we overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, not loving our lives to the end. So if my testimony involves this, I'm not going to just shut that door down in my heart, nor am I going to want it to become something I'm desensitized to. So, I mean, even talking about it now, there's a sadness to it. I still, it takes me back to that ambulance ride. It takes me back to those things. But I've also, you know, done enough therapy and I've done enough healing spiritually to where it doesn't trigger me. Nor does it am I desensitized to it. I feel that power, but it also it's Luke. It's a strange thing. It's almost like I feel that connection to her when I use my testimony, and when I do that, I feel like I'm honoring her. I'm honoring Jesus, and I'm hopefully helping anybody listening to this who's going to go through a hard thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you and your wife, you have four other children, and so you're going through your own grief uh, with with the loss of your daughter, but you're also having to like parent your kids and shepherd them through their grief. How, how did you wear like both hats? Like how, how, how did you find yourself being able to like deal with your grief, while also being like fully present as a, as a dad for your kids? Or did you feel like that, like that was too much? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, it's all too much. It's always yeah. too much. But then again, you know, that's the whole Isaiah 40 thing, you know, call in the name of the Lord. He'll call you to mount up with wings as eagles. So there's a thousand things that make me feel like it's too much, but then you ask God for the power to do what you can, right? But not to be cliche, but I would say the answer to that question, which is a good question and an important question, is imperfectly. I imperfectly, my wife and I imperfectly grieved while trying to help our kids. Mistakes were made. We have regrets, but we did it intentionally. So we made sure to have time for ourselves, 
like if she needed to go to the grave alone or if I needed to go to the grave alone or if I needed a walk, which is part of the way I grieved. We both grieved by journaling. And then we also just made it, we never made it taboo. You know, some cultures and families, they just, once you go and go through grief, you just don't talk about it again. You don't, the photos up or some, maybe it becomes a shrine, like the bedroom never gets touched. You know, we didn't want that to be how we, we wanted it to be open so our kids could speak about Linya. And it's weird, like my four-year-old has never met her. Uh, you know, it, it's hard because his own, like you can tell there's moments of his grief where he's realizing he's grieving the loss of a sister he never knew. So it's almost like a time delay. Um, and then we've made sure, like Olivia is 16 now, we made sure like counseling is available to her. So she's taken that some, and, and as she needs it, we, we're willing to do more. So, and we have an open dialogue about it, feelings, pain, emotions, all that. And I just think, and the other thing is, even though it was hard to grieve while helping the kids grieve, it also helped us because had it just been Jenny and I, it would have been a lot easier to stay in bed 24 hours a day for those first few weeks. Mm-hmm. But hey, having to make mac and cheese, having to keep like we had to have a Christmas that Sunday, that week, yep. you know, as hard as it was, they needed to still have a holiday because their life didn't end. And we had to keep it, you know, moving along. Yeah. I had a, uh, a friend who was uh, serving at our church and uh, there's someone who's part of our church who uh, passed away tragically from a heart attack. Uh, a guy not much older than you and I. And uh, this person's uh, widow uh, was about to walk up to, like, the person from outside who, uh, like, she knew the person who, was, who, who passed away, but, like, she's not part of our church, and so she was kind of, like, like, she was a guest speaker, and so she kind of, like, freeze, like, froze, and she, she kind of leaned to me, do I say something, do I not? Do I say something, do I not? Do I acknowledge, like, the person who passed away, or do I not bring it up? And my default answer is, like, you always talk about it, um, because it's not like the person's not going to know that their loved one isn't there. If someone asks you that question from your experience, what answer do you give? Yeah, I'd say the same thing. um, You you would think it's going to make them sad, and it might. And I think some of the reason, you know, that you would be hesitant to bring it up is because you would see emotion. But that's not a bad thing. Yeah, giving them that space for emotion is good. Is good. And so if you see someone crying, don't be like, "Oh, I shouldn't have brought it up. I shouldn't have talked." It was like, we like to talk. We it's good to cry. We we it's good to hear stories. If you have a memory or a reflection or anything, saying their name is awesome. Mm-hmm. So if I am approached by a parent who I know is is grieving and I always, what was your child's name? What, tell me about them. Like, give them the chance to talk about it because even if it's hard, even if I see them crying. That's good. It's healing. Mm-hmm. And as, as time goes on, tears become less frequent. And that's actually, in its own way, a different challenge. Because then when your body physically... Because at a certain point, you cannot keep crying. Yeah. And then you have to almost deal with, wait, I'm healing. And the hard thing about that is, doesn't mean I don't love them anymore. Now I'm not crying anymore. And it's, it's just so complicated. So I would say, absolutely yes. It's Even if it's hard, still talk. But be careful when you talk. Meaning... You know, don't try and give answers. Don't try and Romans eight twenty eight. Don't try and you know ask questions. Be a good listener, and and and, and the Holy Spirit will guide you. Yeah, uh, I had a uh, professor in college who lost her husband when she was probably thirty or something like that. And uh, from her experience of, uh, of of loss, she had this like almost like a proverb to share. She goes, "When when uh, when you experience loss, people don't know what to say." And so just hear whatever they're saying as them trying to express sympathy, despite like the terrible platitudes, like, you know, going to Romans 8.28 when it's not the time for Romans 8.28. Um, 
people don't, just don't know what to say. They, they feel like o- overwhelmed and they want to say something to make sense of it, but they don't, obviously there's, there's nothing that can make sense of it. D- did you have to do something like that? Like just to filter like, Hey, I know people are going to say things that aren't. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell grieving people, and this is what I tried to do myself because someone told me this, um, and it's this. When someone approaches you to talk about it, um, choose to put a thought bubble over their head. See it. Like visualize a thought bubble, especially if what they're saying is annoying. And in the thought bubble, put in these words. I care enough to say something, but I don't know what to say, so I'm choosing to say and then put a blank. And then whatever they say... Put the, let that let that guide it. So, for example, I had someone tell me, um, you know, about their grandma being dying. Like, I know just what you're going through, losing your five year old. My grandma, who was like 98, you know, died in her sleep peacefully uh, at the end of a century on this earth. And it's like, I choose to believe that you don't know what to say, but you're saying this. So, you know, the person who told me that said that they had someone come to them and try and commiserate the loss of his 30 year old son. By telling them I had a dog die once, you know, so but the point is people are choosing because by nature we tend to try and sh- find any common ground. Mm. So whatever the hardest thing anyone's gone through is what they're going to pull out yeah, yeah, yeah. to talk to you about the hardest thing you've gone through. But it's useless to compare pain. All The only good thing is just to experience like, hey, your pain hurts to you. So it's important to me. Mm-hmm. But it does help to put that thought bubble out that's when brilliant. someone is, is doing that. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a brilliant piece of advice. Uh, I will definitely be sharing that in the future. Um, but my mom passed away uh, just a few weeks into the pandemic. And so, you know, funeral during this is not like a realistic thing that uh, we were doing back then. And, you know, in some ways people like were very sympathetic. Oh, well, you, you didn't have like a normal funeral, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, and I really appreciate that. But part of like the way I'm wired at this stage of my life is... I liked having kind of my space during grief and in some ways like being able to grieve where like just a few people around me was something that was really um, appreciated by me in a weird way. Like in hindsight, I can see that in your position when this is happening, like if there's not a pandemic, if you're like a normal pastor who's around a lot of people, uh, like, did you find yourself like needing more space or did you find energy by being around people? I don't know if you're an introvert or an extrovert, but um, like, did, did you find like the, the task of your like day-to-day job was less than conducive for your grief? Man, these are great questions. First of all, Luke, let me say how sorry I am about your mom. What happened? How did she go home? Uh, my mom has had uh, Lyme disease, had Lyme disease for uh, most of my adult lifetime. Um, and so she just, uh, when I passed away, um, I guess the kind of assumption is it was like a stroke or something, but uh, it was it was sudden. But uh, in hindsight, like my mom's been chronically ill from a most of my adult lifetime. Man, I, I feel like I hear so much about Lyme disease. Was it a tick? Do you know? Yeah, yeah. we used to live in Philly. That's where I was born. And the, kind of the, the theory is that she got bit by a tick when, when I was born and she was a bit, uh, and then kind of went dormant and then it kind of came back probably 15 years ago or something like that. I swear, I, like every couple months I'll be hearing about that. And you just think being in the woods as often as we are, just yeah. how careful you need to be to check your dogs, check yourself after being out there. For sure, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, in response to the actual question, I relate to what you're saying a lot because people like you and I, who tend to do an extroverted job, oftentimes surprisingly do be re- are rejuvenated by being alone. So I love crowds. Of course, like, like the lead singer from Radiohead, Tom York once said, I want people to notice me and to leave me alone 
both often at the same time. So yes, I thrive on speaking to lots of people. That's part of my calling. Same with you. But then we tend to be energized by being the opposite of that, like being alone, being left alone. Like give me my back porch and a 600 page book and a cup of coffee. And that's all I want. Like that's, give, that's happy that's place. Perfect. But then, yeah, exactly. So I did tend to find solace in long walks alone, drives by myself. I took a month off of work. Um, and my family and I went out of town for most of it. We went to Seattle and California and just tried to just be alone, have us a space to heal. But then, you know, you have to get on with life. And so I think at that point it, it became like, it was daunting, of course, coming back and preaching the whole first year is just awful. You know, grief is, grief is like being put into a washing machine. You know, it's just, you're everything spinning which way up. And so, but, but then you, you keep going and, you know, C.S. Lewis said, the tears come and they last for a while, but then once the tears dry up, you have to decide what you're going to do mm. and how you're going to face the future. And the, the good news is if you grieve properly, you can and will become stronger than you were before you went in it. Yeah. And um, the, the pain never becomes lighter, but if you become stronger, the same weight will feel like it's lighter. That's, yeah, that's good. You said preaching was daunting. Was there anything specifically that was like most daunting about coming back to preaching? Yeah, it was an emotional wreck, you know, um, I'd break down. I, I'm usually, you know, I might shed it, actually shed a tear on Sunday talking about intercessory prayer because I just, the Holy Spirit touched me in the moment. I don't, I don't often cry. I would say one out of a hundred sermons, I might shed a tear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I come back and I'm just weepy. I'm just like the, the slightest thing I just would, mm-hmm. you know, and that's embarrassing to be up in front of your church, like, you know, so vulnerable, so raw. You're like one big nerve. Yep. And but and then even the um you know the writing of sermons itself it all just was yeah. hard and then uh, and then it got easier my church was so warm and so gracious and and then i felt like my friend always tells me he's like the thing is you don't realize like you don't have to talk about linya for people to know that's your story so when you say something like you know god's good it hits harder now yeah. because they people know your your life has been bad in some ways so it's kind of a fun thing. Like and I told my friend this, his, he's went through a trial, different trial. Was, his was a marital infidelity. But I told him, you know, if you let God heal you, you're going to weigh more. And your words are going to weigh more. Yeah. And yeah. you say this, even a whisper now, is gonna, people are going to hold on to that because it's a public thing. They know this is, he's gone through this, yeah. you know? Yeah, that makes sense. And I can imagine like you're like just one open nerve where, you know, anything just touches it off. Um, yeah, yeah, if that was my daughter, I'd, I couldn't imagine. Um, my, a couple months after my mom passed away, uh, I was back. Uh, so I practiced ju- uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And so I'm uh, at class and I'm rolling. And uh, there's a song that came on. It was uh, Tupac's Dear Mama. I don't know if you remember that song. But I'm rolling. And so like I'm like trying to uh, choke someone and more likely trying to like not be choked. And then Dear Mama comes on. I'm like, oh, crap. I'm going to cry. Like I'm going to start crying right now um, <laughs> in the middle of like the least... Uh, like sensitive time of my day, but you can't like control like gr- someone would describe grief. It's like a brick that you just learn to carry and it's always there. And like, it's, hard, like, it's just a weight, like you're heavier now uh, and it's always going to be there and uh, you don't know when you're going to bump into it. That is a very funny story. And it reminds me of the first time I went back to my gym. I have a home gym now, but I had the time worked out at a public gym and it was so like daunting to go back and work out. And I was like, I'm going to, what if I break down in the middle of it? Sure enough, I'm 
bench pressing by myself, you know, trying to keep it light, 45 pounds or whatever, just trying to go higher, higher reps, lower, didn't have a spotter with me. And, uh, and man, it just hits me in the middle of my set, bro. And I'm like, like sobbing, like, and I I had to dump the weight and just get out. I like bolted out of there. It was just one of those things like, because I was trying to go to failure and I sure found failure. Yeah. But it was not physically, it was emotionally. Wow. It's uh, tough. Um, Dear Mama, though, that's a lot. That's it. Like, that's a good, yeah, that's a song. It, uh, that's a good story, though. Is that, do you do the uh, Gracie or what, what you just see? Do you, no, which, which I, art do you do? The, uh, the school I'm a part of is Brazilian top team. It's uh, a guy named Marilla Bustamante, former UFC champion. Like, it's the chain of gyms that he, uh, he founded. But uh, yeah, yeah. That's so cool. All my kids do jujitsu. Oh, wow. I like your kids yeah. more now. That's great. Can you get your oldest daughter is how old? Okay, so she just transitioned out because she's just doing so much tennis now. Okay, uh, but she was getting up there, um, and then yeah, my my four year old does it, my okay. nine year old girl does it, my eleven year old girl does it. Okay. We're an FBG family. Okay, nice. I I hope to hear that uh, your daughters took you out one of these days. Are you are you Gracie Baja? Is that where you your kids train? So it's SBG Straight Blast, which is. Okay. Uh, I think it's connected to that Gracie family. I mean, they're, they're kind of like everywhere behind everything. So honestly, um, but yeah, so te- we're big. Do you play tennis? No, no tennis. Okay. So my, we, my daughter's on the high school team and we play, I've, I've played since I was little. Okay. She finally beat me for the first time. So that's the kind of the equivalent of getting choked out a little bit. Okay. So nice tennis. Yeah. My, my daughters are more into uh, cheer. And so they've already far surpassed me cause I've never done any cheer. So I don't have any. That's the four days at Disney world. Yeah. That's, that's, but, um, yeah, there it is. Uh, so the C.S. Lewis quote you referenced earlier, like at some point, like the tears dry up and you have to decide like what you're going to do. And I completely botched that quote, but obviously one of the things that you've decided to do is you, you wrote a book in a lot of ways, like it's, it's an honor of your daughter. Uh, like the nickname, uh, the, the line, did, how, how did that nickname come about? Yeah, we didn't know that. So my godmom is named Linya, mm-hmm. which is where we got the name for our daughter. Linya Lion was what we called her because we discovered that Lion and Linya are the same thing. Linya in Russian means oh. lion. So we named her that not knowing that. But then when we discovered it, we're like, well, that makes sense because this girl is a ferocious lioness. Mm. So we just started calling her Linya Lion. Mm. And then, yes, after uh, she went to heaven, I was thinking about – because we did, we did this thing uh, with this organization called Sight Life where they um, take her corneas. And they gave them to two blind people. It's an amazing organization, uh, and they do this all around, all around the world. And they help help people see who are blind. So we said yes to that, um, and we found out later that they had been successfully transplanted onto two blind people who now could see through these eyes. Um, and, and our daughter was a part of that. So what we realized was like, wow, there are two people who can see through the eyes of a lion. And that became part of a message and a mm-hmm. book and just kind of this rallying cry to turn pain into power. And my newest book is for kids. It's called Roar Like a Lion, and it's um, dedicated to Linya. The day we released it, we did a little fundraiser where we tried to get people to donate money to give to this organization, Sight Life, to fund uh, corneal transplant surgery for people who can't afford it. And um, we were able to raise $100,000 on the release of this book just to give to this company, this organization. It's just so exciting. Wow. Is, I don't know if this is like feasible, but like, is there a chance for you to interact with the people who were able to receive? Yes, we did. We, we, through the organization, they facilitate what donor families and recipient family co- conversation. Now, it's, of course, at the discretion of both parties. Yeah. So we're not in control. Basically, 
I was able to write them a letter, which we confirmed they received. And the letter told them about who Linya was, told them about her story, told them about who we are, our faith in Jesus, our love for them, our gratitude that they would get to see through Linya's corneas. Um, they never wrote back. We, we, we have high hopes. We were contacted right after this all happened by Good Morning America. They wanted to do um, a show where they brought them on, brought us on, and we would meet on camera. And both people on their end uh, rejected it. They said they wouldn't. They didn't want to meet. They declined to do it. We were disappointed because we would love to get to meet them, and it would. We still hold on to that dream. I, I really believe one day uh, it's going to happen. But the people at Sight Life tell us that it's not too uncommon because it's uh, what they call um, that survivor's guilt that you referenced, where they they feel so guilty that it's almost like they can't go there. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. we just kind of believe one day that God's going to make it happen. Hmm. There'd be part of me that'd be a little bit like offended, like about like you know you're anyway. Um, you, you, I'm with you. Okay, there's a little part of me too okay. that I have to shut down. I have okay. to say I have to do some choke outs on that part of me too. Okay. Um, I mean I, I've got some friends who'd be more than willing to choke them out, uh, literally. But uh, yeah, no. I, I, anyway, we can make that happen. But uh, you, you're a better man than me. Uh, I, I've got a, a friend who uh, from my church who j- received uh, lungs. And uh, like saved his life, and now he's there to be with his kids, and uh, like just like for for that guy, he he has this like awareness of gratitude for this person, and he also understands like the cost. Like that is a like it, it is like it a, a very big price that someone paid to give you this gift. Um, yeah, I'm, I, that's beautiful. Uh, what you guys have done, uh, the money that you guys have raised, the way that you brought awareness to that, um, and then like turn this into a book, uh, obviously for adults and then for kids. That's like encouraging courage, and it seems like courage after what you you've gone through, especially for your kids to be courageous to not be afraid. Uh, like that probably doesn't come super easy after you've you know seen someone that you love like pass away. How, how do you instill like? like in your kids, this, this concept of, of bravery, even though I'm, I'm assuming like there's a lot of fear and stuff that's still around. That's exactly it, Luke. You know, the, um, the thing we try and tell our kids is that, um, bravery isn't to feel no fear. You can only really be brave when you're afraid, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's in those moments that the greatest potential fear for fear exists. You know, we've, we've read a while back, you're, you know, you're a parent, you, you understand this, like, you have to be picky about what you praise for your kids because the, the, the temptation as a parent is to only praise your kids for things they're naturally good at, but that's what they have the least control over. Yeah. You know, so my daughter, who's a great artist, my temptation would be to fawn over her art. And every time someone comes over to the house, go, hey, look at Daisy's art, look at Clover's art, you know, or just praise them for the one thing they're naturally good at instead of praising them for the things they try hardest at that maybe that don't come the most naturally to them. That's good. But I think all of us can kind of appreciate that in life, we're going to do the best when we have, the, when something's the least easy for us, but we try the hardest, meaning we buckle down in the areas that we don't have the most self-control. So, you know, we try to remember that when we praise our daughters for, you know, or son for, hey, this was not hard, but I saw that you worked at it. And I think that the same thing's true with our father in heaven. Yeah. 
I think we have gifts that we need to steward, of course, but I also think that when stuff's not so easy for us, when we have to bite our tongue, when it takes having to choke out our tiny little fleshly nature and we still choose to do it, I think that's the most important. And that's the message of We're Like a Lion. Yeah. It's not, life's going to be great, you know, just trust God, do whatever, you know, be courageous. It's, hey, sometimes it's going to really hurt and you're going to feel really lonely, but in those moments you can really trust God and that's, that's true courageous. Yeah. Okay, first of all, let me say, I appreciate you keep going back to uh, jujitsu references. Uh, I know you're into cycling. You were a cyclist. I haven't made one like Lance Armstrong reference. And the fact that you're far more hospitable to me is a sign of your maturity. So I really respect that about you. Um, Okay, so someone's listening. They hear you talk about this book and they want to give it to their kid. Um, But maybe they've never done anything where they've been intentional about like developing or instilling faith in their kid. And they're trying to figure out like, how do I start? What does that look like? How, How would you recommend someone... Uh, some parent to do that. Yeah, well, I mean, that's really my heart in this book. I know most parents want to instill faith in their kids. Most parents want their kids to have a relationship with God. I think the Bible's intimidating sometimes. You think, like, I'm going to sit my kids down and read them, like, the book of Exodus. You know, it's just like that thought, how is that going to work? Or you've tried and everyone kind of freaked out. That was my goal. Is like, you know, a spoonful of sugar helps medicine go down, right? So this book's very colorful. I partnered with an incredible artist uh, who did a phenomenal job with all the illustrations and pictures. There's fun facts for the parents, too, because I also know... If you're reading a book to your kids and there's not something to pique your interest, so there's lots sure. in this book that's going to go over the kids' heads, but it's going to be fascinating to to you know you and I. Like, how did Frank Sinatra develop his you know unique dancing move? It was because he was avoiding having pennies thrown into his throat because he used to sing with a micro a megaphone before he could afford a microphone. Mm-hmm. So he had to swing because people would throw pennies and try and get him in his megaphone. So it's just kind of a fun little thing, like. That, that's going to go over your five-year-old's head, but you and I are going to be like, huh, that's interesting. That's interesting yeah. uh, stuff about the Wright brothers or Neil Armstrong. I want to teach kids history, teach them the Bible, but also there's verses every day, there's prayers every day, and this is 90 days. Because we all have been there where our kids want us to read the same book to them night after night, and we think to ourselves, if I have to read that Green Eggs and Ham one more time, I'm going to choke Sam I am. Yep. Uh, but this is 90 different days, so you can read it, and it can be something that can add a little bit of faith to your home. There's also an audible version. So if you have a, you know, drive to school every day with them, you could put it on in the car and it could be a fun way to add a little bit of faith to your mornings. Yeah, that's good. Were, were you a history major at some point? Or are you just uh, interested in history? I am so obsessed with history, Luke. I, I can't even tell you. It's like my favorite thing. And I terribly applied that gift at school. It's just been in like my second quarter uh, that I've really realized, wow, I love history. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was glad that you got to like flex some of those history muscles with some of these anecdotes that you included in the book. So I'm happy for you. Hey, thanks so much. The uh, so the line, like you tell a story about, like you you went to um, Af- Africa, a safari, and you got to see lions there. Yeah, so we went to South Africa, mm-hmm. learned a lot of things, uh, learned about uh, hyenas, and learned we, we were on this little safari outside of um, outside of Cape Town. <clears throat> and um, one of the things they told us, they, we saw this pride of lions mm-hmm. sitting there. Great spot for a cycling reference. We would call it a peloton of lions there. Wow. That was, um, good. That was really good. But the, just kidding. Um, the, uh, the, the tour guide goes, you know, lions can see six times better than a human, which is, I, I did know that. And then he goes, but what people don't know about lions' eyes, and I'm like, my ears perk up, you know, he goes, is that they are actually born blind. And when a lion first comes into this world, they can't see at all. And I love that because they go on to see so much better than humans can, partially because they have they have a higher percentage 
of rods than cones in the back of their eye. Rods help with uh, perceiving uh, shapes. Cones help with color. So lions are actually very bad at color. They don't they don't know a lot of like navy blue versus black. They would not do good at that. Is yeah. this dress gold or you know yeah, blue they're... contest on the Instagram? But yeah. they're really good at shapes because of all the rods. But when they first are born, they're completely blind. And so I love that picture because Jesus said, if you say you can see, you, you, your sin remains. But if you admit you're blind, I can open your eyes. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the journey to having lion sight is admitting in, hum, in, in humility that we can't see. Yeah, no. No, I like that. I like that. I, and I appreciate any reference to an apex predator in a Christian book, um, you know, animals that typically kill uh, a lot. Um, I, I asked, I, you've been on Annie's podcast, Annie Downs, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I asked her to write the forward for my last book, and the first sentence she writes is, Luke really loves sharks. And, uh, like, that's how she started. So I feel like anytime you can reference a love for an apex predator, like, you're doing good things. Bro, I'm a big fan of sharks, too. Shark Week's... You know, the conflict, though, is they started airing Shark Week at the same time as the Tour de France, and so I didn't <laughs> know which show to watch. <laughs> uh, oh, there's so much. Like, you, you watch toward... Like, you're that into cycling, like you're watching. I do like the Tour de France. Uh, okay, it's 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 like chess on a bicycle at sixty miles an hour while descending a hill in spandex. Yeah, no, I like I I don't want to do any of those things. Uh, I'm, spandex is the thing I'd be most comfortable about. The whole sentence you just described. Did you watch um, the documentary Icarus about uh, doping in cycling? Yes, absolutely. Okay, did you get any hints, like of maybe ways for you to further your cycling career? Well, no, because I told you I hung up my spurs. I actually don't cycle anymore because I bought this electric bike that goes 30 miles an hour. And it is so – I look at my bicycle. I've got a carbon fiber road bike that I have to power up the hills. Mm. And then I've got this steel 100-pound monstrosity that will power me 30 miles an hour up the hills. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a little doughy these <laughs> days. I'm going with the electric bike. Okay. You know? like, I respect that. My dad's got one, and he likes it. And so, like, you do you, man. I'm happy for you. But I have taken up boxing, and that so I am getting a little bit of cardio just from the boxing. And then, of course, I play tennis. Okay. Uh, so I have a speed bag and a heavy bag. And I, I before the pandemic, I would have this guy come over and hold the mitts for me. Really? Tell me about this. When did you get into boxing? Uh, yeah, so it was about three years ago, probably. I would weekly have this guy doing the. I mean, I bought a little timer, so three minute rounds yeah. with thirty That's second a breaks, lot, though. like a three minute you know, round. Three minute, yeah. three minutes on the mitts or on the bag. It, it puts you to the end of the brink of I'm going to suck into my lungs and breathe out battery acid. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. Have you used boxing? Okay, in the last three years, have you used more cycling or boxing references in your preaching? Whoa. They don't probably sneak in either of them in the preaching too much. Okay. You know, because most people, those are such obscure sports. I know. You know, it's easier to say flag on play, you know, yeah, yeah, that than it is to say, um, you know, what would you, what would it be a boxing preaching analogy? I mean, I guess Paul did. Yeah, he, Paul said, I don't shadow box, yeah, right? That, no, I mean, that's in there. There's no cycling references in the Bible. I, in college, was a that's a funny sentence, yeah. I, there's no cycling references in the Bible, there's no crying in baseball, and there's no cycling in the Bible. No, there's not. Know? And but Israel literally means the one who wrestles with God and wrestles with people, so I feel like grappling. Like, I'm not saying it's better than cycling. I'm just saying, like, it's, it's in the Bible more. And if that's important to you, the Bible, then maybe that's your answer. I found it. Okay. Jacob was a smooth-skinned man. Which? That means Jacob shaved his legs. Yeah. Uh, He's a cyclist. Okay. 
I shaved my legs in college because I was a pole vaulter. You don't have to shave your legs for pole vaulting, but I just did. <laughs> but that is a very obscure sport, and I've tried to use pole vaulting references probably for 20 years, and they've all ended poorly. Um, n- no one just they, – they just don't go with them. But, but what an impressive thing. You know, kudos to whoever thought of pole vaulting and said, you know what I think? Here's what – like, like what is the story of origin on that? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. It actually comes from gymnastics. Like, it started as a gymnastics event, and it uh, came over. I, I think part of it, like, if you go all the way back, it's something about, like, um, like getting over walls. Like, it's like a military thing, I think, from the beginning. Like, I mean, it's very, very Mulan, very ninja, for yes, sure. Yes, Mulan. Um, that's it. Yeah, that's, that's Mulan. That's where it came from. That's. I'm going to say this, though. Like... How many horrible things happened in developing the right tensile strength of the stick, or what do you guys call it, the pole, Yeah. Uh, before they got the right ratios to launch over the wall like that? I'm, I'm just impressed you had the word tensile strength in there. I, I don't even know what that means, but it's an impressive word. Um, that it would bend enough to give them the flip, but, but not shatter and impale them, right? Because I'm sure there's some horror stories of people who have been impaled while trying to pole wall, right? Yeah, no, I like one of my worst experiences is breaking a pole. Um, like it, it's terrifying. And, uh, so like all of a sudden this thing you are used to, like you, here's, here's a sermon for you, this thing that you're used to relying upon, but in a random moment, all of a sudden it snaps and you're upside down completely out of control and chaos because that, which you depended on for years, all of a sudden fails you. Anyway, that's a sermon illustration right there, but that'll preach. I, you think it would, but like, it doesn't like people are just like, ah, why would you pole vault? And that, anyway, but I would start the sermon by saying, I'm really, in sh- I'm really into sharks, but I want to talk to you today about <laughs> pole vaulting. That's the sentence. I, I, yeah. Um, I've used sharks. Like I, I had uh, an opportunity. I was in Hawaii speaking at a church, and I got to do uh, a dive with sharks uh, like outside of a cage. And so it was like, like one of the most amazing things in my life. And I try to like talk about that in a sermon, and it... Um, like the first rule of if you're in the water with a shark, you never turn your back on a shark. You always keep, keep eye contact. You're communicating that you too are an apex predator. And uh, like, again, that illustration, not the best. Didn't work. Okay. Well, I think it's pretty good. What kind of, are they tigers? What were they? Uh, tiger is like the best case scenario. If it's like a bull shark, you're getting out of the water as fast as you can. Like you don't mess with those. The, there was... Um, There's hammers down there too, right? Hammerheads are super like docile. Like I wouldn't have any stress about that. Um, bull sharks would want to be terrified. Aggressive. Yeah, su- like super high testosterone level. The, the person who runs this organization, her name is uh, Ocean Ramsey and her husband is, his name Juan. Uh, his name's Ocean Ramsey? Her name is Ocean what? and his name is Juan Oliphant. And... Uh, there was a a white shark that was 20 feet that was in Oahu, and there's a video of Ocean, who's like this like small woman swimming right next to it. It is like amazing. Anyway, so um, those. So I did preach about sharks once. Uh, I have a whole section in my book Swipe Right called "Sex Means Scars" because I was watching Shark Week, and there's this special of these sharks, and they're swimming around. And the narrator goes, "You can tell these are sexually mature females." You can tell because of the scars. Sex means scars. The presence of a scar means the the presence of sex in their lives. And I was like, wow. Because it made me realize like so many people who have scars, it, it was because of sexual decisions. Sex means scars. So when I preached that sermon at our church, I used a remote control shark. Like it was a, a helium-filled balloon in the shape of a shark. I love it. I love and it. I start, I, during the sermon, I had it fly out and you know, fly over the audience heads. It was a lot of I fun. Lo- I love every bit of it. Um, 
I was in college and I did an intramural rodeo because I went to college in Texas and I did the bareback Bronco and I ended up with a substantial concussion as one could imagine. And the day after I get out of the hospital, I'm at my house and my now wife is checking on me. She's a nurse. And so she's like, Oh, I got to check on this idiot who just got a concussion from riding this Bronco. And I'm watching on repeat this shark documentary. And she walks in, like I'm wearing the same sweatpants for days in a row. Like I'm, I'm out of it. And it's a scene in which the sharks were, were breeding. And the scene is like the shark would bite the other shark. And that's how, reproduction happens oh, yeah. and so that's like my wife walks in i'm concussed i'm watching like shark pornography shark and, porn yep that's yeah. that's how my marriage began so let me ask you this how have you all these years managed to not go by the instagram handle at bareback bronco because it seems <laughs> to me that it's just like you've left some uh some money on the table there pal ah, man i mean that's why you're a writer because you come up with uh, great stuff like that um that's that's pretty brilliant. Um, and maybe that's another book title, but I don't know if it'll be as good as like the lion stuff that you're working with on this one. I feel like Teddy Roosevelt, if he'd have kept writing, Bareback Bronco could have been on the list. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Well, uh, this has been a great conversation. The, uh, the first app, pretty heavy. Um, and I feel like I was crying during most of that. So uh, thanks for bearing with me and uh, letting, yeah, letting me work through my stuff. But uh, the book is, uh, it is out, Roar Like a Lion. It is out right now, isn't it? Like it's out. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. People go get a copy of it, get it for your kids. Go Audible, listen to that on the way to school in the morning. Like that's a that's a brilliant idea. Levi, well done, man. Thank you, Luke. Appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah,